Mark chapter 10. Call your attention to just three verses, verse 32, 33, 34, which doesn't seem like a lot, but, but those three verses are filled with intensity. And we're going to do our best to sort of pull out what, why is that here? How is that good for our souls? What use is what we're going to read today? Mark chapter 10, beginning verse 32, grass withers and the flowers fade with the word of our God. Stands forever. Let's begin verse 32. <clears throat> and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us. God, I pray that you would heal hearts, that you would bring soothing comfort to souls that have been in pain. God, I pray that you would shine light where darkness has been. Father, I pray that you would expose sin, reveal sin, bring about a turning from it and forgiveness of sin. Father, I pray that you would restore the joy of salvation. I pray that today would be a day of renewal. I pray that today Jesus will be seen as Lord and lifted up, that all eyes will turn to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 1998, a groundbreaking movie entitled Saving Private Ryan hit the theaters. Saving Private Ryan was a groundbreaking movie in many ways. It sort of sparked a kind of renaissance of interest in World War II history and all the drama that's involved. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, you know that the opening scene is especially captivating. The American GIs disembark from the troop ships out on the English Channel. They stand shoulder to shoulder in those Higgins boats headed toward the beach, Omaha Beach. There on Omaha Beach, they would be disgorged right into the teeth of the enemy. And as you watch that opening scene, the way it's written and the way it's shot, it is, it is done in such a way you start to feel, veterans would say this, you start to feel just a fraction of the tension those American GIs experienced on D-Day. It's intense, it's, it's moving. 
And, and what Spielberg did there, when he shot it like that, what, what he did there to bring that emotion, I think Mark is doing right here. The author named Mark, he has ratcheted up the intensity in Mark chapter 10. The context in chapter 10 is that the story of the rich young ruler is over. The rich young ruler has walked away. The lesson has been taught. It's a tragic lesson about his life. They've learned the lesson of the rich young ruler. And now Mark tells us they are back on the road traveling together. For the very first time in the book of Mark, after intimating and saying it and hinting at it for two chapters, for the very first time in verse 32, Mark tells us explicitly they are going up to Jerusalem. As they travel, Jesus will pull the 12 aside and there on the side of that road going up to Jerusalem, he will explain to them for the third time What's waiting on them up in that city? He's going to tell them, I am going to be killed. Not the first time he's told them. The first time he told them this is in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. <clears throat> Remember Mark chapter 8, that's the great confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And it is a joyous thing to hear and to be said. There is victory in what Peter says. And Jesus tells Peter and all of the disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, that he is going to Jerusalem to die. It is necessary that I go there to die. The second time he tells the disciples they are coming down off the mountain of transfiguration. Remember, Jesus is transfigured. They see him in a way they've never seen him before. Peter is so excited. Let's build some shelters and stay here. They come down off that mountain. And as they're walking down, Jesus, for the second time, Mark chapter 9 tells them, we're going to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, I must die there. It is the plan of God. And now, in chapter 10, now in our passage, for the third time, as they are walking up to, as they are walking up to Jerusalem, Jesus gives the most intricate detail as to how everything is going to unfold when they get to Jerusalem. And as you read it, it feels like a biographical sketch of Jesus. And what I want to do today, <clears throat> really just have one thing. What I want to do today is use that biographical sketch, what Mark has given us, and do like Mark has done, and just hold that up in front of you and convince you. I, I'm trying to convince you that Jesus, I'll say it like this, Jesus is who you need and all you need. Especially those of you that have been coming, you believe in God, you're not sure where you are as far as a Christian. I want to convince you today that Jesus is who you need and all that you need. Let's start slow and we'll pick up the speed as we go. Let's lift up this biographical sketch. The first trait I want you to see, number one, is that he is our redeemer. He is our redeemer. When I say that, what I mean is we are trapped in a cage of sin. We are slaves to sin, and, and we are owned by a slave master. 
Jesus is the Redeemer and that he will come and pay the price, which is his life, to buy us out of that cage. How does he do it? Well, the text tells us in verse 32, he is going up to Jerusalem. You see that in verse 32? <clears throat> they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, you always said, when you're talking about going to Jerusalem, you never said you were going down to Jerusalem. You always said you're going up to Jerusalem. Why? It's on Mount Zion, maybe because of the altitude, maybe because it was a holy city. You go up to Jerusalem, or maybe it was like, what we did here in Charlotte not too long ago, years ago, you didn't want to say going downtown anymore because somehow that was bad. Now we want to go uptown, just going up to Jerusalem. The text tells us that they're going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the one who will save us. All of the illusions, I've been going through the Old Testament, in my own personal reading plan, I've just taught for the last six weeks on the major prophets, all of the Old Testament, all of the allusions, all of the types, all of the prophecies, all of them would be fulfilled in Jesus going up to Jerusalem. In fact, if you know the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals would be sacrificed and the blood would be shed, to show the cost of sin and to remind us that the wrath of God must be taken away. All of those sacrifices didn't work. They didn't work. They reminded us that one is coming who would work. All of those would happen in Jerusalem, up on the Temple Mount. There's the place where God would meet with his people through sacrifice. And Jesus now is going up to Jerusalem to be the sacrifice for sinners. Here's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus living perfectly, dying on the cross in our place as a sacrifice, that sacrifice turning the wrath of God away, that done for you, and the way you become a Christian is you believe Jesus did that for you. Redeemer, do you trust him? Do you trust him as your redeemer? Let me give you another piece of the biography you'll find there in verse 32. Not only is he our redeemer, he also is our example, our example. Now, you don't hear this preached much, and I think with good reason, because I don't want to just say Jesus is the example. If you'll be like Jesus, you'll be fine. No, we want to have good theology that talks about what Christ did, why he did that, how that applies, what does that mean for me. But let's not forget, he also is our Example. Join me there in verse 32. I'll show it to you. Verse 32. <laughs> they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. It's an interesting detail in verse 32. I, I want Mark to tell me more, but I'm glad he gave us this. What is he telling me about Jesus being out front? Jesus is not normally Described like that. Normally he's with the disciples. Normally he's seated with them or they're walking together. Here Mark gives us this strange detail and says Jesus is walking out front. In just a moment he's going to pull the twelve aside and teach the twelve why they're going up there to Jerusalem. But right now it's just good for us to pause and see the majesty. See the fortitude of Jesus. 
See our Savior out front. When Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 50, Isaiah tells us that Jesus has set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. I want you to see the strength of Jesus. I want you to pause here with Christianity just for a moment. When you look to Jesus, let's take some of the toxicity out of bravery and courage and strength and notice that Jesus has that. That it is good for you to be brave, to be strong, to have courage, to actually lead. What did Luke, Luke, when Luke wrote his gospel and described this moment, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us that when the days drew near to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's him right there, out front. There's some events coming up for Jesus. These, these events would be terrible, but they are a part of God's purpose and he is leading his people right into those events. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to die. He does so with great bravery and courage, even though he knows it's costing him his life. The whole plan of salvation rests on Jesus out front walking to Jerusalem. Like I want you to to see Jesus, not just as your Redeemer who has saved you, I want you to see him as your example. That you have great determination and an unfaltering commitment. That, that God gives you courage to, to follow Christ. That you have real resolution. Resolution. I have a poster in my office here at the church of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is the greatest American preacher and wrote, and wrote the most famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He, and although that makes him sound like he's an angry man, he's not. He's a happy Puritan. And Jonathan Edwards, when he was 17 years old, you can look him up. 17 years old, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, great resolutions of, of courage and following Christ. I want you to have that sort of fortitude to look to Jesus as our example of discipline and and commitment and joy in the Lord and, and ethic. Our own ethic comes from Christ. He is our redeemer. He is our example. Let me see something, show you something else here in the text about Jesus. Number three, he is our shepherd. He's our shepherd. You'll notice it with me in verse 32. Read, it, read verse 32 and look now, not at Jesus as much as the 12. Let me show it to you. <clears throat> They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, this is an odd detail. And they were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. Jesus is out front. They are following. Those with them, who are the they? Maybe it's the crowd. Maybe it's the 12. They are amazed. Those who followed are afraid. Something has happened to Jesus. He's the good shepherd, he's out front, but there's something different in the way he walks. There's something that those that know him are following and they are amazed, they are afraid. Something has changed in, in his demeanor, the look in his eyes, the change in his gait. He's leading now. Look, if, if, if you know someone well, if you're friends with someone, you're married to somebody, Maybe a best friend or a brother or sister. 
You know by the way they walk. Something's going on. Jesus is out front. He's leading the crowds. They are amazed and afraid. They're afraid at how he looked. It, it, it seems as if they know they are going up to Jerusalem. Now, to go up to Jerusalem in the presence of Jesus, in the company of Jesus, is risky business. To be associated, I'll just bring it to where we are, 2024, to be associated with Jesus right now in your life, risky business. It's not good for your career, it's not good for your social life, it's not good for your standing, it's not good for where you fit in the culture, it's just not good, it's risky. I'm so thankful for middle school and high school students that are brave, walk with Christ. College students that really are sold out to the Lord. The, what it takes now to identify with Jesus as a 20-year-old. To, to live for Jesus. To trust his word. To follow his ways. To use his ethic. To see the shepherd out front, that the Lord is your shepherd. Do you know that song? We sang it a little bit today. I hope you've memorized Psalm 23. A couple of things in Christian life you should memorize. The Lord's Prayer is a good one. 23rd Psalm, the Ten Commandments. You should know the 23rd Psalm, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's with me. Your rod and your staff that comfort me. You prepare. Listen to where he puts the table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. They surround me, but they know i got a big brother. You've anointed my head with oil cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is our redeemer. The Lord is our example. Jesus is our shepherd. Let me give you a fourth one to consider when you look at Jesus here in this biography. Number four, he is also our teacher. He is our teacher. What is the Lord teaching you? Read it to you in verse 32. Once again, Jesus pulls the 12 aside to teach. Verse 32, they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Jesus sees it, and taking the 12 again, he started to tell them, this is what's going to happen to me. Once again, Jesus pulls them aside and talks to the disciples and teaches the disciples Take a look and think with me about the word disciple. A follower of Jesus is a disciple. The very word disciple tells us what we are. A disciple is one who learns. A learner. Not just following, we are learning. How do we learn? He teaches us. Several ways God teaches you. You probably can list a few. I'll give you just four or five ways that God teaches us. The first and primary way God teaches us is through his word. 
God teaches you who he is, what he wants, how you are saved through the Bible. God teaches us how to live, what holiness is, how to confess sin, how to run from temptation through the Bible. If you want to know God, you read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. This is God's word for your soul, his word, the Bible. It's not the only way he teaches us, though. God teaches us through creation. You can look around you and see there is a creator. You get the sense when you look at creation, this is his world. We are reminded that God is the one who is in control. If I were in control, it would never, ever, ever rain on a Sunday. But you can obviously see, I am not in control. God is in control. This is his world. He does whatever he wants. We look around at creation and we learn something about God. You know how else he teaches us? God teaches us through relationships, relationships. God brings people into our lives for our own personal sanctification. God uses people to bless us. God uses people to discipline us. God uses people to refine us. God uses marriage as a means of sanctification. God gives you another person who is absolutely nothing like you to live in a house and act like you're happy. Why? Sanctification. It's going to teach you holiness, teach you things. God uses relationships. He gives you children so that you are humbled, teaches you things. You learn things through the relationship. God uses them to teach us. God uses, the fourth way God has taught us is through suffering, through hurting, through suffering. There's nothing like walking through suffering and thinking you're not going to make it. And having God sustain you and carry you through using the church, using people, just using his spirit to bring you through something you didn't think you could get through. And he teaches you about his power and his sustaining and his love and his kindness. God teaches us through suffering. God teaches us through worship. Man, we learn something every Sunday when we come, come together in corporate worship because most of us in this room are not anything alike. God in his goodness has brought us from all walks of life and every agenda we might have gets sanded down because we come together with the church and it washes away any weird prejudices we have. Because so we find out, although we are so different, the one, common, the one common thing we have is Jesus Christ, him crucified, we come together around the cross of Jesus and it knits us. We become a family as we sing unto the Lord. And when you do, you're ministered to, your heart is made new, your soul is refreshed, you are strengthening brothers and sisters. We learn something when we worship together. We learn, God teaches us, I'll give you this last one and I'll come out of the cul-de-sac and get on down the road. God teaches us through his, his, uh, his providence, his providence. When I say providence, I don't, this time, I don't necessarily mean the, the grand history. I think that we do learn when we look at history and see God, how he's worked through the ages. What I really am thinking about here is your own personal providence. You know, you have a personal providence. You're old enough where you can turn around and look back at how, how God has worked, what he has brought you through, all the mountains and valleys, dead, dry, desert times, all he's done to get you up to this point and you learn something. He is our teacher, our teacher. Let me keep moving, show you something else about Jesus. You learn from verse 32 and 34 
This is number four, number five. Yep. Number five. Let me give it to you. He, we learned that he is Lord. He is Lord. Verses 33 and 34. If you take verse 33 and 34, what you have there in those two verses is the substance of what Jesus taught the 12. And so when you read it, Jesus lays out in intricate detail exactly what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. In fact, there is so much detail, especially in verse 34, that in the early 20th century when liberal, when, when liberal theology professors we're dealing with this text. It was popular to sort of be skeptical. The liberal theology professors would say, there is no way that Jesus predicted this. They assume that somebody came afterwards and wrote it because there was so much detail. There is no way he could have known in such detail what was going to happen. Of course, he's Jesus and he knows everything. It's the whole point of this passage is to remind us that it, things are not going to just happen to him randomly. In this passage, Jesus is, you can read it in verse 33 and 34, he calmly and clearly describes all of the circumstances that will lead and accompany his death on the cross. There is nothing held back from his disciples so that they will know he's not a victim. This is not involuntary. He is going there on purpose. The crucifixion of Jesus happened by his own free, determined will. He decided. When you get there, it's going to feel like it's going to feel like the Roman soldiers are in control. It's going to feel like the scribes and the Pharisees are in control. It's going to feel like Pilate is in control. Jesus is telling his disciples, we're going up there and you need to know that I am in control. From the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus saw the cross set before him. And he goes there as a willing Savior. When the appointed time when the appointed time came, Jesus went there willingly, what for? To pay for our sins. This passage is here to remind us, to remind the disciples, He is in control. That He is Lord. And I want to use this passage just to convince you that Jesus is Lord. And He's worth your life. He's worth you pledging your life. He's worth your loyalty He's worth you joyfully submitting to him. He's, he's worth you giving yourself and trusting that he's done what he's done for you. He is Lord. Let me give you another thing to consider about Jesus, the biography. Here's the sixth thing, and maybe my favorite. That is, he is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. When you read verses 33 and 34... There's great detail in those verses, and it genuinely is astounding. Now, Jesus has listed exactly what's going to happen, and it, there's not another gospel, not another gospel that tells us this sort of detail. 
What I want to do, I want you to keep looking at it, verse 33 and 34. I'm going to walk through it, especially verse 34. I'm going to walk through it, and I want you to see Jesus suffering in your place. Jesus in my place. Christ suffering for you. All right, join me there. Let's go quickly. Verse 33. Verse 33. When you feel betrayed, when you feel betrayed, when somebody you love has betrayed you, when a Judas has shown up or even a Peter has shown up, when you feel betrayed, verse 33, he was delivered over. He was delivered over, handed over. Jesus was betrayed in your place. When you feel the poison of betrayal, you need to go to the cross of Jesus and leave it there. He took the poison out of that so that you could move on with your life and be forgiven and forgive. When you feel betrayed, you go to Jesus. When you feel condemned, verse 33, when you feel condemned, see him sentenced to death or even the wording condemned to death. When you feel the weight of something that you have done and you don't think you can come out of this hole, when you're in the absolute point of despair, maybe falling off on the cliff of, of self-harm or suicide, look, brother, I want you to come to the cross of Jesus and see him condemned. He took the poison of that condemnation. You take that to the cross of Jesus. When you feel your sin, when you feel, verse 33, when you feel your sin, look at the little phrase, he was handed, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. That's code talk. Handed over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the Romans. It is a veiled way of saying, I'll be handed over to be crucified. When you feel the weight of your own sin, remember Jesus Christ died and took the wrath and the poison and the, and the heat and the death of sin away. It's Jesus going to the cross for us. When you are misunderstood, come to verse 34. Look, you're going to be misunderstood sometimes. When you are misunderstood, Jesus says, I'm going up there to be mocked. Do you see that? To be mocked. When you feel like the world hasn't gotten you at all and you carry some of that resentment or maybe bitterness because you were misunderstood, you go to the cross of Jesus and know he was misunderstood for you to take that heat away. Look, when you are mistreated, go to verse 34. Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'll be I'll be." I'll be spit on. They're going to spit in his face. You feel like you've been treated in a condescending way. You've been humiliated. Someone has been so disrespectful to you and it has caused resentment and you have bitterness. You go to the cross of Jesus and there you see Jesus has lived that for you. You don't carry that around. When you're abused, in some sort of way, when you're abused, verse 34, Jesus says, I'm going up there, I'm going to be flogged. That whipping, that flogging was an egregious, that was nothing more than a Roman soldier showing dominance. Jesus says, I'm doing that on purpose for you. I'll take all that damage away. When you feel guilty, when you feel the guilt, verse 34, Jesus says, I'm going up there. They're going to mock and flog me, and they're going to kill. That's the cross. That's the cross right there. When you feel the guilt of your own sin, we go to the cross. Don't carry it around now. Jesus went to the cross. They're going to kill him. 
Right there is the gospel story. Right there is the gospel power. The gospel in a couple of words. Jesus in my place. It's the gospel. It's substitution. He is our substitute. And that's why I'm trying to convince you that Jesus is who you need and all you need. He's our redeemer. He's our example. He's our shepherd. He's our teacher. Jesus is Lord. He's our substitute. I'll end it with this one last one. Number seven. He is our hope. He is our hope. What did he tell those guys? All of these terrible things are going to happen to me at the very end of verse 34. They'll mock and spit on him. They'll flog him. They'll kill him. But that's not the end, guys. After three days, he will rise. There's the resurrection of Jesus. There's the hope of humanity. There is the miraculous smile of God on all sinners. The resurrection of Jesus, what does it do? It confirms you are forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus tells us death has been defeated. The resurrection of Jesus shames Satan. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees heaven for you. The resurrection of Jesus tells us you are now justified before God. The resurrection of Jesus tells us you've been united with Christ. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that the Bible, in fact, is true. The resurrection of Jesus says that the gospel works. What Jesus has done for you works. And I'm trying to tell you, that he is Lord and Jesus is who you need and he's all you need. This morning I hope that you'll give your life to Christ. I hope that you'll yield to his goodness. I hope that you'll rejoice in being saved. I hope that you'll come to Jesus. To close our time of preaching, I'll invite you now to pray with me just for a moment. With your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord. In just a moment of commitment and prayer, we're going to sing one more song. And uh, as we do, it's a good time to come forward and pray if you'd like to. If you'd like to come and pray for someone, pray yourself. Maybe you want to come just rejoicing, thanking God for the healing power of the gospel, for saving you, for using you. Maybe you want to come pray for someone. Maybe you'd like to come and talk to a pastor. Our pastors will be here or, or even later in the lobby if you want to talk through what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would bring healing and hope and joy, salvation and forgiveness, that you would bring cleansing and health. Find us faithful, even as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together.